Welcome to Geared for Growth and another bonus episode of the podcast. Today, it's a copy of the recording of a live webinar that I did with Chris Gray, property investing guru and TV host, and that was on the 13th of May 2020. We were talking to Chris about whether he thought there was going to be a property market crash. We were chatting about the opportunities for investors, where they are and how long they're likely to be that way, and also strategies that investors can use to grow their wealth regardless of what the market is doing. So the recording was done during the pandemic, but there's bits and pieces that have value regardless of the external conditions. It's a great interview with Chris who shares some fantastic contrarian views, and that was really the theme for the evening, and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. Here's Chris. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining me on this webinar with Chris Gray. Chris, thank you for coming on board. I've just lost your audio there for a second. Um, hopefully, it's just me. Um, we'll persevere with that in, uh, I think we, we look like we're all right. Anyway, um, I'll jump into the, the slides and we'll do a bit of an intro uh, on what we're going to cover. Um, have I got you there now, Chris? I've got, yeah, I can't hear any audio. If anyone could jump in the chat. And just let me know if you can get audio. We were, Chris and I were just chatting in here a second ago. Of course, as soon as you hit, you hit the button, you have all this fun. But anyway, we'll, we'll do a quick um, overview in the meantime. So we're, we're talking about contrarian investing tonight and capitalizing on current opportunities. Um, yeah, Marty's saying that he doesn't have audio for you, Chris. So jam a couple of buttons and see what you can do there. Um, you've got me, but um, yeah, oh, Melanie's good. Gosh, it's a mixed bag. Anyway, there's no one that I could think of um, better than Chris when it comes to contrarian investing. And I think now it's a perfect opportunity for people that are prepared to be a little bit brave and go against the herd um, with respect to opportunities in the market. So for anyone that hasn't come across Chris before, he probably won't like me putting the accountant thing first, but he is a qualified accountant. He's a former host of the Your Money, Your Call show on Sky Business. Um, he's also got another show, which I'm sure he'll, he'll be sharing with us tonight as well. Um, buyer's agent, business owner, property investor and author. Um, his book, The Effortless Empire, is getting around. You can certainly get a free copy of that by, by going to his website as well. Keynote speaker and, of course, contrarian investor. And that's why we've got him. And he's also enviably retired from full-time work in his early 30s. So we've got... Um, a pretty good uh, pedigree there for tonight. What we're going to cover, we're going to talk about the state of the market right now. Will there be a property market crash? Where are the opportunities for investors if there are opportunities and how long that window is likely to stay open? And it's, a, of course, a good chance to have a chat to Chris about strategies to grow your wealth regardless of the market that we're in. And then we're going to go to a Q&A as well. So if you've got some questions along the way, fire them through. We've had some questions before the start as well. Chris, um, John saying, don't be shy. Are we still, is anyone hearing Chris? I'm seeing lips moving, but nothing's working at the moment. Yeah, I, I still, I, 
I apologize for the technical issues here. I still can't hear you, Chris. Um, maybe if you use that link, you could come out and, and get back in. Um, that might be the best way to go. And if you're still live with us, hopefully we are still good and everything's working. Nick, um, Chris is going to cycle back out. Have I got everyone on audio on, on my side? If you could pop in with a question, it's a bit of a clunky start. But while we're doing this, um, I'll jump in to a poll uh, just to get a bit of a pulse of where people think the market is up to. Um, where do you think the market's going to be 12 months from now? I'm going to publish a poll. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you think it's going. I can hear something there now. Hi, can you hear me now? Yeah, that's perfect. Wonderful. Beautiful. It's, it's amazing, these things. We, we chat for 15 minutes and suddenly uh, prime time comes and it all goes. I don't know. if there's, there's probably a lot of Zoom calls and webinars going around tonight. It's the COVID thing to do. You yourself have been slimming down as, as the COVID thing to do, which is frustrating. I think I've probably bulked up a bit. But anyway, while you were gone, uh, we of course went through what we were going to talk about today. And I've just popped up a poll on where people think the market will be 12 months from now. And 42% of people are saying up, 28% neutral, and 28 down. So there's some positivity at the moment, and it seems to be growing. Chris, you're very plugged into the market. Obviously, you've been a buyer's agent for a long time. You maintain some pretty important connections with referral partners and agents and investors in general. What's your take of the pulse at the moment? Sure. So like the media always says, as soon as people talk about one market, then I, I generally turn off. So it's very much dependent on your price point, your location, where you are, the kind of property you've got. Yeah. So all of the stats, like the first thing I say about the media, and I've been in the media for say, 10, 15 years, <clears throat> is don't leave it. You need to be on the street seeing what's happening. So for things like vacancy rates, a lot of people are talking about uh, renters at the moment. Your suburb could have a 10% vacancy, but if you've got the right property with the right agent in the right condition and it's rented out, who cares what the vacancy rate is? Yep. Um, we talk about Bondi Beach, the, the most famous suburb that everyone knows, so that's why I use it, not because it's, it's necessarily um, the be-all and end-all, but there's probably 10 different property markets in Bondi. And whether you're selling, buying or renting, it depends on your property manager, your buyer's agent, your seller's agent. But all of that said, most people know me for being a blue chip long term hold investor. I'm not that worried. Um, I was cautious in the, the third week of, of March, but all the people I've spoken to, I haven't really heard anything under the table that I would necessarily worry about. So yeah. sure, it's going to be a journey and it could be tough. But with all these things like the uh, mortgage holidays, uh, lower interest rates, um, all these government grants and stuff, I think it's covered as much as it, it, it can be. To see a big market crash, we really need to see people selling under duress, right? So they're, they're being forced in a position where they have to sell. That's the only way we could see a crash or a big drop. With the mortgage holiday, technically, can that really be happening right now unless people are just panicking? So people panic. Um, we're, I'm in a property options fund as well with some other people. Yeah. They've all panicked and done done stupid things. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I see people all the time looking at selling and, and people ask for my advice and I'm saying, why are you selling? And oh, we're over in the UK. We just thought we'd get rid of it. If we get a reasonable price, we'll get out. 
And if they bought it for 500 and it's now worth a mil and they sell it for 900, it's still a 400 grand profit, mm -hmm. but it's, you don't need to sell it. Yeah. It's not going to be the best time to sell a property in the middle of COVID. So don't yeah. do it. But as you say, it's forced sellers, it's panic sellers and people just have these irrational thoughts and they're listening to friends and family. Um, other p stories I've heard is people getting out of super and I don't know anything about shares and super. The only thing I know is every single economist and financial planner says, do not get out of super in a crash. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's a bit of a worry, isn't it? The, the sort of the government initiative to enable people to access certain amount of their super right now. I mean, they're crystallizing the losses right now if they're taking it. Fair enough. I don't know what it's like to live in their shoes. There could be all sorts of duress that they're under and, and difficult situations. That might be their only choice. But if it's not, it, it, can't, it doesn't seem like it's the right decision. Yeah. So most people have choice and it's education and knowledge that gives you that choice. And so one of the messages that I like to put out is for most people, they go and get a good education. They go and get a good job. They buy a house, they pay it off and do and then go and invest. At the age of 22, I just started investing because I was kind of lazy and I was trying to go to A to Z the quickest way. So I've never actually built really a career, even though I'm reasonably well known. I've never actually built a career. That was never my, my thing is I built wealth in property. And no, from all the books I've read, no one looks after your money better than you. Mm. So why not study money? Because <laughs> rather than studying your career, study money. Uh, yeah, and I couldn't imagine you today as a corporate accountant. I think you'd be a, <laughs> a, sh a shadow of your true self. If that well, the, well, Deloitte's were a bit surprised. So one of the funny stories, if, if you hadn't heard it, was um, of the reasons I left Deloitte at 31 was I tried to salary sacrifice a uh, convertible Ferrari. Of course And <laughs> my partner at the time, I was, I was only lowly paid. I was paid uh, 80 grand or 60 after tax. And I was saying, how does it work? Is it on the retail price that you pay for the car or the listed price? And she said, I'll ring this partner. And he didn't know my name. And I said, oh, how does it work? Because I'm buying this car for 250, but it's really worth 500 brand new. How does the FBT work? And he said, 250 what? And I said, $1,000. And it was just silence because no partners at Deloitte's were buying convertible Ferraris. <laughs> and we worked out the FBT was on 500 grand. So I'd be paid uh, 80 grand a year, but my tax would be 250 grand a year. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I remember a story that one of your first big equity redraws was actually to buy a Porsche. Is that right? Yeah, so that was at uh, 24. So uh, there was no Rich Dad Poor Dad in those days. There was no TV shows. There was no nothing. So this was back in probably about 93. And I bought a 100 grand property for £80,000. So I borrowed seven or eight times my income because I worked out a three bedroom house was cheaper than a one bedroom unit because I could rent two rooms out for free. Mm -hmm. um, and then I wanted to buy a car and I, I saw an advert in the paper that you could use your equity to build a kitchen or to uh, do a home renovation. And it was unheard of in those days. So I rang the bank and said, oh, can I borrow three and a half grand to buy a car? And they said, no, the minimum's 15 and you've got to prove what you're doing with the money. So we need to see an invoice. And I thought, well, I could probably spend 15 if you give it to me. So I went down to the Porsche garage and I thought I'd get some really kind of uh, black, dirty old Porsche that would uh, be inconspicuous. And I walked out with a red convertible. <laughs> and uh, I think to this day, my dad still doesn't know how I funded that at 24. But again, is I couldn't afford to buy one, but I could afford to put one on the equity. Yeah. And even if I sold the house I'd, and paid the mortgage in the car, I'd still be ahead. 
When I was thinking of a, of a title for, for getting you on, obviously I'm very interested in your thoughts on the market at the moment, but contrarian investing was, was the best thing that I could think of because I think that describes your approach um, very well. Even people that maybe haven't come across you before just in the last couple of minutes, they'll see that you've got a pretty unorthodox way of doing things, um, but, it, but it serves you well. You've been able to, 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 to grow some fantastic wealth and have a lot of fun along the way. Um, so we definitely want to dive in the ways that I think thinking of, or going a little bit against the grain when we do have a big sort of herd mentality in Australia that drives property price movements, it, 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 it's, it's going to be, I think, an interesting uh, discussion. Getting back to the property for a, a second, there's a lot of vested interests in property. I mean, we know the media likes to sell the boom and the bust and never in the middle. But there's a lot of real estate people, buyers, agents say, now is the time to buy. This is the golden opportunity. If you miss it, you know, you're going to kick yourself. And of course, these people are wanting to transact. They might have a business that's, that's suffering. Is now a golden opportunity or, or, or do you think that this is just people trying to pump it up a little bit? Look, I'm a buyer's agent, I'm a property investor, I've got a vested interest, everyone's got a vested interest and that's what people have got to realise. Um, look, it, it's hard to see through things and, and that's why you've got to get the knowledge yourself in a way or you've got to follow someone that you can trust. But it's hard to know who to trust. You look at Current Affair and all of these kind of programmes and the scam artists on all the time. And there's so much money in property that... Um, yeah, it attracts a lot of people. A lot of people said to me before, what seminar should I go to? Because I went to a seminar before and that's what got me to retire at 31 through the education. And I say, go to them all. If someone's just come out of prison, sign up, go straight to a seminar. See <laughs> what he was doing to other people and learn their tips and tricks, maybe of what not to do, because then you can learn how to get around them. And the biggest one I heard from probably the biggest ripoff artist around uh, Australia was get an independent valuation and I've used that and I've spruiked that for for the last 15 or 20 years and I reckon that's the best thing you can ever do in your life is get an independent valuation so we buy one two three bedroom units in the same suburbs for the last 20 years every single time we buy a property for a client or for myself we get an independent valuation for 660 building inspection for 440 and strata for 250 we spend 1350 bucks and we're the professionals yeah, to right. just double check our stuff so 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 that's that's one thing but look i do believe in it i i'm i don't try and convert people to property when i do seminars i say look if you think you can make more money from shares or from business go off and do that because if you believe in it you'll make it happen so even if you're buying property now and it is the wrong time, you'll make it work. You'll beg, borrow, steal. Hopefully you won't steal, but you'll get a still still a, a holiday from the banks. But you'll make it work, yeah. and you'll love it. And it's that determination, just like the Olympians of getting up at four or five in the morning. Yeah. And nothing's perfect. Um, everyone makes mistakes, and we learn from our mistakes. But what I've learned in the last thirty years is. Even if you bought at the worst time in the market, it's generally never been that bad, mm. as long as you can hang on. As long so as, as, long as you can that. afford the mortgage now, you've got a cash buffer so you can afford it for the next couple of years, generally you're going to be okay if you insure the property and pay the right price. 
Mm, yeah, I, and I think that's that's the key, isn't it? If you're forced in a position where you need to sell because you haven't got a buffer and you did pay over market value, that's when you can suffer. But of course, over a long time frame, even if you didn't buy terribly well, the market's going to catch up. And if you've got the patience, you can do something with it. Yeah, and look, half, half of the portfolio, so my portfolio now is anywhere from like 15, 16, 17 mil. Half of what I've got today, I bought in the GFC of 2009, 10. All of my friends said, don't do it. Don't you read the newspaper, Chris. It's Armageddon out there. We've never had it before. You're from the England. You don't understand Australia. It's different here. And all of those stories, and they're all from people that work full-time for a living that used to give me lectures. <laughs> and sometimes you've got to be contrarian. You've got to go and do it. I did my numbers. I was very good at my numbers. I was paying 10 or 11% interest. On one of the properties, I bought it for 1.9. I put 600 grand in, so it cost me 2.5 mil. Three and a half months later in the GFC, I got it revalued at 3.5 mil. So I made a million dollars in three and a half months in the GFC, paying 10.5% commercial rates. Wow. And you wouldn't have done that even as a partner at Deloitte. Oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, you mentioned before that um, there's not just one property market in Australia. I'm interested in your thoughts about which sectors of the market are, are most likely to, to hold up pretty well throughout the course of the pandemic. And I guess even to the other side, when we see the winding back of the, of the mortgage holidays and the job seeker and job keeper stimulus. Sure. So look, in a way, I think I'm quite lucky. I just managed to get on the right track from day one. And that strategy from, I've done maybe 400 interviews on Sky with CoreLogic, RP Data, Residex, all of these bankers and stuff like that. And it just keeps reproving to me that the strategy works. So John Edwards, who was the head of Residex, the predicted capital growth um, for the whole of his life and was kind of a, a real geek around it. The thing he said was, Everyone's talking about these economic laws of wages not keeping up with inflation and, and all of those kind of things. He said the overriding economic law from school is supply and demand. Yeah. If there's none of them and people want them and they can afford them, the prices are stable or they're rising in any market. Yeah. And so what I've learned in, um, say, Sydney, 5 to 15 k's from the city, so Eastern Beaches, Lone North Shore in the West, and it would be similar in kind of Melbourne and Brisbane as well, is... There's three-story height limits. You can't physically build any more property. And we'll talk about Bondi just because it's easy. Yep. You cannot build any higher than that. Even if you've got a big brown paper bag and you go to council, chances are you're not going to get it. And there's people paying 10, 20, 30 million to live in Bondi. And so the million-dollar price tag of a two, uh, kind of one to two-bedroom unit, people just don't sell them for decades and decades and decades. And so if there's none of them... There's plenty of rich parents that come along with a bag of cash and they'll buy them for their son or their daughter. And I'm not debating whether that's right from a moral or, or kind of um, a community perspective, but that's the way it is. Mm. So we're not buying $100 million properties in Point Piper. It's median price or within 20% of the median price for the area. No supply, lots of demand. Things get rented and they don't sell. It's funny you say that because there's a lot of people that talk about Sydney and they say the wages to asset price ratio is is to the point where it's it's 25 times a salary in some areas and it just it can't go on forever. But then there's uh, there's the mum and dads who are equity rich that are able to move in. So that metric doesn't make sense. Big shout out to mum and dad 
too, if you're wanting to pick me up something in Bondi, we'll have that conversation. But, but also with that, so John Edwards always also said was parents' generation, one income earner, massive house, massive land. Now we've got two income earners. Now we've got smaller land. Um, now we've got cheap interest rates. They were always double digits or if not into the 20s. Mm -hmm. um, we now have first homeowner grants, stamp duty, all of this stimulus to get people into the market. And so my mum and dad bought a property when I was four, so 45 years ago for 30,000 pounds. Now it's say one and a half, two mil. That was a fortune in those days. And everyone's got the same story, their grandparents, the parents. Everyone said, oh, if you could marry a millionaire, you'd be set for life. Now you'd be poor. <laughs> um, all of these things is history just keeps repeating itself. And the mar John Edwards says the market finds a way for people to afford it. And quite often it is the parents' generation before. I'm going to be giving to my kids. I got help from my parents. There's education now. There's guarantee mortgages. If there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Chris, um, there's a lot of media out there talking about a, a property crash. Um, as recent as moments ago, there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald about house prices could fall by 32% according to the RBA. But then, of course, you dig a little bit deeper and they say, we actually think it's unlikely. Um, you've shared on social media your views on why it's unlikely that there's going to be a crash. Can you elaborate a little bit on that point for us? Yeah, and, and look, the first thing is about the media is that's what they publish. They publish the worst because I always said on my show on Sky, everything's fine, tune in next year, and I'll tell you it's okay, tune in the year after that, but that doesn't win ratings. So I've never had the highest rating show, and I don't think the CEO of Sky appreciated that. But it's the truth. And that's what we were trying to appeal to is not the best audience. We were trying to get a good audience that wanted the truth. And it doesn't sell headlines. Uh, Louis Christopher, uh, SQM Research, recently he had said something about 30%. But that was maybe 5% of his conversation. The rest of it was saying, no, I think it'll be 5 or 10%. But they don't pick that up. And because it doesn't, I mean, the journalists of all people are the worst that are worried about their jobs. It's almost like they're they're trying to ask him a question to get him to say thirty or thirty five percent, right? Like that's the story that they want to write. They've already written it before they're, yeah. they're talking so to experts. I'm not sure if you're a fan of Merit at First Sight, but if you uh, follow that program, which is absolute, it's a good way to detox and not think about anything. <laughs> they were saying is they they keep those uh, reality TV people in there for twelve hours until they say those words. Yes, and. And I've done plenty of current affair and today tonight shows, and I just say to them, "What do you want me to say?" Yeah, okay, yeah. well I can't say that, but I can say this. Is that going to work? Because there's no point wasting an hour for them to get those two words. We may as well cut to the chase. Who are you after? The the landlord, the tenant. What's the angle? Sure, I can either confirm that or I can't, and and let's not not mess around, kind of thing. That's good. Um, it saves them locking you in a room and and depriving you of sleep, right? We'll just get to it and I can move on. Yeah, because we're all commercial. We all know how things work. And if I waffle on about something else, they just won't use it. So hmm. I'm not going to say something I don't believe in, but I can word it a certain a certain way to get the point across. Yeah. But look, back to the question. Again, it depends on the market. So for that classic blue chip um, in demand, lack of supply, I think the mortgage payment holidays, the cheap interest rates, and with the interest rates and the rents, it's not about 
what the mortgage rate is or the rent, it's the differential. So in the good old days of 2000, we used to get 5% rent returns. $500 a week was a 500 grand property. But we were then paying, say, 8% interest, so we're losing 3% gross. Yep. Now we're getting, say, 3.5% rents, but mortgages for some people are 3, 3.5. So the differential is actually zero. Yep. And so even though rents are down, which puts a lot of people off from investing, it's the differential that you actually pay, assuming you've got an 80 or 100% mortgage. So I think it's the best time, the most positive cash flow time to uh, to invest. So look, I think for those things, low interest rates, mortgage holidays, rent still coming in, I think it's going to be fine. What's going to drop 30 or 40%? I reckon high rises. Yeah. You've got these properties that there's a thousand in the block or a thousand in the street. There's no foreigners buying. They're scared off. Um, although it, uh, exchange rates are in their favor. So if they do come back, that could be a rush because of the exchange rate. Yeah. Um, and so if those guys aren't buying is because foreigners have to buy brand new. Yeah. Most local Aussies don't buy brand new. Most buyers agents don't buy brand new. It's generally people going for the shiny thing or going for the depreciation, which I know we'll have a conversation about later on. Um, and so those are the, I guess, the volatile stocks that if you want to be a Harry Dent or a, um, uh, I think it was Steve, I'm trying to think of his name, the, the guy that walked to, uh, lost the Macquarie bet and went to, had to walk oh, up Kosciuszko. Steve Keen. Steve Keen, yeah. If you're one of those guys, I'd be using that data to say, yeah, property has dropped 40%. I was right. Yep. Yeah, something that's Airbnb, big block. There's there's not a lot of differentiation. There's always tons of them on the market. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. And um, getting back to the poll, um, we've actually, we're going to end up on a 34% um, of people think that 12 months from now, the property market's going to be up 34% think neutral. So we've, we've, we've moderated a little bit. Pretty thirds, yeah. Yeah, there you go. And uh, and we, we'll roll into the second one, which is um, while I'm asking you the next question, which is, is now a time to buy, sell or hold? We've sort of, we may have even sort of answered that question or at least got your opinion on that. But um, we've talked about sort of the long-term game of investing and, and obviously, you know, being patient and buying a good quality asset. But there's, there's doubtless opportunities for investors at the moment right so where are the opportunities for investors if they're able to purchase they've got pre-approval now and how long do you think that window is going to stay open i think it's going to be a small window but we'll see again it's going to depend what you're into so if you're into this buy and hold in february we had a staff meeting to say we were worried about the market that it was getting going to be too hot again Mm -hmm. Because in a hot market, when we get a million dollar valuation at auction, it sells for a million and fifty or one point one, so five or ten percent more. Yeah. It makes our jobs super hard. It's great for my own personal portfolio because that's making me money, but it's hard for business. Literally, in a few weeks, it changed, and now we're selling. We're buying five or ten percent under that valuation. So technically, from us buying at a million to then buying at nine or nine fifty, it's only dropped five or ten percent. Mm -hmm. I reckon that's going to be a small window. Yeah. But if you were an emotional buyer and you were paying the 1.1, technically it's dropped 20%. So it's an even bigger opportunity. But I, I don't think that's a real a real, um, real drop. Now, if you're wanting to try and time the bounce, the biggest opportunity, as I reckon, is buying a lot of that developer stock that you could, could have got 30 or 40% off. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what lots of developers were doing or, or investors were doing in 2018-19 through the credit crunch. Yeah. They were buying 30 or 40 apartments up in Brisbane all in one go. Wow. And they're playing the long-term game of trying to get that bounce back. Yeah. But to me, that's a risky game. My investing is slow and steady wins the race. If I'm borrowing 80%, I don't want volatility in the portfolio. And I'm sleeping at the moment because I've got money in the bank in the offset and I'm not worried about the market because the banks aren't calling. Whereas if I was in developer stock, I think they would be calling. Yeah. And we had the same in the GFC. So on Sky, a lot of people said to us, Chris, you're English. Why aren't you investing in the UK? Because the word was that the market was down or investing in the US. But I don't want to get into a property or an asset, borrow 80 or 90%, which is going to be volatile. And I've still got two properties 20 miles north of London in a place called St Albans near Watford, if anyone knows that. And it's almost like the Bondi without the beach and without the accents. So it's full of um, well-educated people with um, young professionals, wealthy parents. It's, um, what do they call it, Uh, kind of heritage or conservation area, so you can't build any more properties. Mm -hmm. And suddenly in the GFC is all of those people still had jobs in London. And they had wealthy parents to bail them out. And effectively, the mortgage rates were 1% or 2%. So suddenly, they could afford, if they could keep up their repayments, they could pay the mortgage off in seven years versus 25. Mm. So there was no stress there. So that's the thing I'd be wanting to buy. And suddenly, a GFC comes. It doesn't really change in price. So there's no real opportunity mm. apart from that 5 or 10%. Absolutely. And when we talk about... Um, the opportunity window, here's something I read from a clever bloke. It happened to be yourself. Um, this was a... This Never believe anything in the paper. Uh, there you go. Well, actually, you, you didn't write this, but um, you uh, you put this on social media, and this is a story oh, yeah. about buyers rushing back in as live auctions, uh, live house auctions return. And your comments were, for those of you trying to bottom, uh, trying to time the bottom of the market, no one can guarantee what will happen in the future. I think there's a reasonable chance that the window of opportunity may be closing. Now, there's a lot of people that are wanting to jump in on the opportunities, thinking that they're going to get a bargain, but they want to see green shoots first. Um, I think a lot of people are waiting to get confirmation that things are okay and thinking that if they're getting in then, they're getting at the bottom of the market. But in my view, the data is is lagging to the point where once you've seen it being green, it might be a little bit too late. What do you think about that? Okay, so the last time people were trying to bottom the market was 2018-19. And as buyers agents, we kept selling to, to saying to clients, I bought all my stuff in the GFC, now's the time to buy it, no one would listen. Mm-hmm. And same, same on Sky, same story. Um, then everyone, if you look at the logical side of things, so we were having labor coming in, who were going to take out negative gearing. But they said it was going to be grandfathered. So if you bought the day before the election, you'd still keep your negative gearing, yeah. which meant by the day before the election. But people wouldn't. They yeah. wanted to see Labour coming in, and then it was going to be too late. And so, of course, what actually happened, so logic says buying the down market, you're never going to time the bottom. Yeah. But no one listens. Yeah. Then what happened was... That was it Sunday morning or Monday morning. Um, the election was on the Saturday. So, yeah, we woke up Sunday morning and surprise result. The Libs were back in. Monday morning, 9 o'clock, is when the market changed. There was no green shoots. There was no signs. 
it happened and it happened instantaneously and the market jumped straight away and through the rest of um, 2019 it grew and January and February into half of March it was growing and all the people then said I've missed it yeah they missed it by one second and then they, they're making their excuse for not buying now I've missed it so there's no point getting in the market the the election was a really weird one and I think that the, the we went to that election with lots of big policies that would have a huge impact on on personal wealth and the property market but even if we're talking about a market that that will change i mean even the the, the banking um the APRA changes was a sort of a, i guess a perverse change to the market but let's say it's a market like at the moment we're waiting for a little bit of confidence consumer sentiment case numbers all that sort of stuff it's probably not going to be an overnight change but even even that change is difficult to time if it's taking two three six weeks right no expert i know in property shares or anything else times the market apart from maybe the share some of the share punters yeah and they always say like i'm rereading um uh the barefoot investor yeah i don't know if you've read that book great book um he's still missing a few things about property but it's a reasonably fair book um and it's all industry funds it's buying yep. the industry fund and buying it over time dollar cost averaging um, I'm in a, a thing called the Entrepreneurs' Organisation, which is um, a kind of peer-to-peer -peer learning thing. And and the the guys in our forum are going through a wealth creation thing. So we've got to read a book a month, which I haven't read for bloody years. And so I've, I've done about 12 books. So I'm rereading some of the classics. Yeah. And they're all the same. Yeah, right. And it says dollar cost average, save 10% of your salary. Uh, Dr. John D. Martini, he said that donkey's years ago. Um all of the big speakers say the same things and when I was writing my first book which was probably about 20 years ago the editor that I was using had all of these newsletters from the 70s and the 60s it was the same stuff <laughs> buy off the plan this is the latest greatest thing save your income nothing's changed but people are always trying to beat you give them 10 steps and they're trying to change it they're trying to get smarter and whatever else Mm. And a lot of the time we say, my strategy is too simple for most clever people. Right. Because we've got a mix of clients, but some of them are the Deloitte's and the lawyers and the barristers as well as kind of regular people. And they're always trying to outsmart it. They say, no, it's got to be more complicated. Yeah. And it's not. Just yeah. buy it and hold. I think after interviewing a few people on the podcast, the 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 best advice and it all sort of seems to be the same is really quite boring like it's not the sort of stuff that sells books or punches sky ratings through the roof is it yes it's, it's the stuff like patience good quality you know not but, not but again is I, I think the message on our website now is about lifestyle so mm -hmm. even though I'm, I'm reasonably well known as a property guy most people that actually know me personally or follow facebook know i'm the lifestyle guy i'm the guy that doesn't work and sure, I've got a business and I do bits and pieces and I'm always running around. But everything to me is about living for today because I assume I'm going to die tomorrow without trying to get all kind of black about it. But I don't have a bucket list because I just do it because I think I might be dead tomorrow. Mm. And so I go hard. I'm out six or seven nights a week. I travel probably 12 to 15 times a year overseas. Um, I'm into my cars and choppers and boats and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of it, you don't need a lot of money to do it. Mm -hmm. And so my portfolio is only 15 or 16 million. There's other people that would expect it to be 50 million, but I don't care. Yeah. And I'm just living for the day. 
And another thing that these books say is whether you've got 10 million, 50 million, 100 million or hundreds of millions, most people, once you've got a certain level of lifestyle, it doesn't increase anymore. Mm. And if anything, it can go downhill and you get kind of negative returns from it. And so I just think is buy some property, look at it once a year, revalue it, pull the equity out if you can, and then go on live your life. There you go. Well, it'd be difficult to difficult to sell a, a book around that, but um, <laughs> your book's been your book's been very popular. So I think people just want what you're having, and you you certainly live that lifestyle pretty large. And uh, and yeah, there's there's people that want to buy in on that. As for our last poll, um, sixty six percent of people say now is the time to buy, and interestingly, naught percent of people say now is the time to sell. So that's good. They're either listening to what we've said. Yeah. Or... And look, I'm a fan of never selling. Yeah. So, so my rule is, is generally you can get more money out by refinancing than paying the 3 or 4% to sell, 5 or 6% to rebuy. It's, it's just not worth it. But the tough thing now is um, serviceability. And so property investing, once you're buying your first one or two properties, is all about the property. If you've got the right strategy, paying the right price, doing the renos, the rest of it. Once you've got multiples, it's... We just get people emailing us, I'm ready for another one, ready for another one, and it's a transaction, it's Excel spreadsheets. Property investing is all about getting money from the bank. Yeah. And the whole of my life now is getting the accountant and their mortgage broker and not saying to the accountant, minimize my tax. It's saying to the broker, how much money do I need to earn to get another mortgage or to pull the equity out? And then you give that to the accountant and say, right, okay, that's the accounts that I want to create, obviously yeah. legally, of course. Um, but that's a completely different thing. So I don't care about what tax I pay. It's about what's the net wealth you're creating. And I don't mind paying another hundred grand in tax if it's going to make me two or three hundred on the other end. There you go. Yeah. And I mean, that, that would, I, I would define that as, as contrarian as well. Most people are just minimizing that pain of the tax, but you're seeing the opportunities to be able to go, go again. And that might mean you look pretty bad on paper from your accountant's point of view, um, but pretty good from the tax office and the bank. And, and mo most accountants don't get it. So you need a forward thinking accountant because the classic thing is there's a limit to how much you can earn, or sorry, how much you can save, but no limit to how much you can earn. So if you earn a hundred grand a year, that's the limit. Like yeah. if you spend nothing, you're a hundred grand better off. But if you leverage that and compound it and do other things, you could be earning a million dollars a year, but you need to do something with that. Saving your way isn't going to get you wealthy on a hundred grand salary. And as Luke Moroni, who's a clever BA himself, says, just bloody buy. Exactly. Um, and it's pretty simple. Just buy and buy well when you're ready. We had a question um, from Matt saying, asking is someone with a property uh, with property investments in both Australia and the UK, do you have any views on the differences between the two markets? Any nuances to be aware of? People claim there are differences. Are there? Look, I haven't really been to the UK for kind of uh, 20 years or so, but I've, I've still got my two investments over there. The main thing is about in, investing in a foreign market is you just don't understand it, even if you used to live there and you're treated as a, as a foreigner these days. And so if I want to borrow money in the UK, generally I can only leverage about 50%. Whereas in Australia, then I can leverage about 80% um, typically. So if I've only got a hundred grand deposit, I can only buy 200 grand's worth of property in the UK, whereas I could buy 500 here. So yeah. even if the UK was a better market, I'm better off having it here because I can control it, I can see it, I can understand it and do all of that. Whereas the UK, I've got to rely on the media for my knowledge and stuff. Yeah. So 
that's why I'm a fan of investing on your doorstep because most people just can't understand what's happening in their own country, let alone in a foreign country. Yeah. Um, over here, I can build a whole block of units. Over there, a poor girl in one of my units didn't have uh, uh, hot water for the whole of winter. And when you know the UK, your whole house is heated by the hot water system. Yeah. And the property managers were useless. Um, her dad was a lawyer who even advised her she's still got to pay the rent even though she she was freezing. She had to have a shower at Fitness First and I couldn't manage it because I had useless property managers. Right. So it just makes life slightly more complicated. I just want to jump into uh, some Q&A because I'm, I'm pretty sure people will relish the opportunity to pick your brain, um, Chris. So if anyone wants to ask a question, jump in the chat. But we've had something come from email via... Brendan, who said investment decisions for investors typically come down to three variables. There's the budget, uh, the location and the asset type. If an investor's got a fixed budget, are you, Chris, more likely or more inclined to compromise on the asset type and downgrade from a house to a townhouse or unit before compromising on location, i.e. proximity to CBD amenities and that sort of thing? Yes, I would say I probably am. A lot of people think the house is the be-all and end-all anyway, and so it depends where you are. So, so my general rule for my book is buy around the median price because that means 80% of the local population can afford to buy it, rent it, or sell it. Yep. And so say if you're in Sydney, typically that's, say, a million bucks, and I, buy, I then buy what the average person would buy for that amount. And so in Sydney or New South Wales, typically I'll be buying a unit in the Eastern Beaches, Lone North Shore in the West. In Melbourne, our counterparts who've got the, our affiliate office down there, they're more into townhouses or maybe a semi-type thing because that's what the average median price gets you around there. And then in our Brisbane office, then they'll go and buy a house. Yeah. So I wouldn't buy a house in Sydney because in those good suburbs, it's going to cost you two million bucks and then the rental yield's going to be one or two percent. Yeah. Or it means you've got to go say 30 or 40 k's out and then you're not in the the prime areas that's low supply on property so look i, I think location's the biggest thing and say the dilemma in our areas is say if you had six seven hundred grand i would rather a, say a one better in a coogee than maybe a two better in a ramwick or right. a kensington or kingsford if, if people understand those areas because even though a two-bedder is generally better because you can have a couple, you can have two singles, you can have someone with the kids, there's lots of different variations and you've got two people splitting the rent. Um, there's maybe 10,000 in that area, whereas if you've got a one-bedroom in Coogee within a K of the beach, there's maybe only a few hundred of those and so it's more the scarce resource kind of thing. Yeah. But look, there's pros and cons of both decisions, so there is no right or wrong. Yeah. And, and, and generally I'd have a, a bit of a mix. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, obviously the location is <clears throat> a big driving force behind your strategy. Luke uh, Maroney, who's back again, has said, what do you think uh, will the banks do with mortgage deferrals? Right, okay. Are we talking about the six-month holidays here? Yeah, I assume so. And I'm wondering if he's thinking, will they extend that? Because I guess what they're doing is they're chucking it on the back end but yeah luke chime in um chime in to, if you want to give us a bit more info on that yeah so look if it is that six month holiday i think most of the issues will sort themselves out between now and then if it's generally okay 
then whatever will happen will happen and they'll just try to manage it one by one yeah if it's a major issue or in certain areas i'm pretty sure they'll come up with something else and i think at both of the starts of both of my books i think i say is the banks and the government almost have to make this work because the whole of the banking system and i'm, I'm not a banker but my basic understanding is the whole banking system worldwide is based on property yeah. and residential property if residential stuff's up they're in a massive hole and so is the government and they've got to go and fix it but when it comes to commercial property it's all owned by businesses and so they don't really care too much and the same with companies and that's what we're seeing with people like virgin and stuff like that i think to invest in an asset like resi property where all the voters are it's got to be the most protected covered type of investment you could ever get that that almost commit suicide before letting the whole economy crash and look yeah. i'm sure there's examples in ireland and stuff like that when obviously things have gone bad but again i'm not sure if it's all property so i, th I think it's going to be okay and i think they'll they'll work something out yeah i mean there's so much of our personal wealth tied up in in property and and so much business that goes around on the on the back of it um it's yeah one of those sort of too big to fail completely sort of situations we um <coughs> sorry chris yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, what they did within literally days to give the whole nation a six-month mortgage holiday, and now it's, it's not free mortgage payments, you're still paying the interest generally, but that's a pretty major thing. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, there's been an incredible reaction to the crisis, um, you know, across the board. And, yeah, it's it's maybe not something that we're going to see again for a long, long time. Um, On to another question that came in via email pre-event. This was from Adam, and um, I guess he's trying to leverage you into a bit of a what-do-you-think-Chris segment. Yeah, that's um, cool. He sent a property in that um, I looked at earlier today and then came back to um, a little bit later and it was sold. And I sent him a message saying, did you know that it was sold? And uh, yeah, I had to give him the bad news on that one. Um, I'll just share my screen. This is the one um, that he sent through originally. So this is a one bedroom, one bath, one car apartment in Marrickville. Um, you can see that on the screen. Yep. Yep. And look, the funny thing was, was on his email, he was saying he's hoping to get it for 600 and it's sold for 690 Yes. Yes. So it's... Uh, so again, it's, um, it, it does show the power of some property. And also it shows probably agents quoting. I'm not sure if he got it quoted before and they said, yeah, we're taking things above 600 but of course they want 700 Hmm. I'll tell you what, some absolutely fantastic. So look, anyway, my initial oh, thoughts on that, I got one of my guys to um, to check it out. So look, um, yeah, sold for 690 on the 11th of May, so two days ago. Um, the last leased out we could find was 540 a week, which is 4% yield, which is a pretty good yield for kind of inner Sydney at the moment. We're around the beaches, we're kind of 3 3.5% at the moment. Um, built in 2015, and it last traded for 630 then. So obviously it hasn't really kind of, or it's moved maybe 10% in the last five years. Yep. So on the positives, um, 64 square meters is a good size for uh, one better and 79 including the parking. Um, from the initial look at it, it looked as if it was in a block of 100, which I would have hated, but the block is only 20, which is yep. um, pretty cool. Balcony, really good location, close to um, uh, shops and restaurants and right by um, Dulwich Hill train station. 
However, the negative is, and if you go and look at Street View, it depends which view you're going to get because you look at the back alley and it looks pretty quiet, but then you go around the front of the Street View and you're right on a major road there and valuers just don't like that. And they don't like having pro residential properties and over um, um, uh, shops and retail and stuff like that because it's going to be noisy, there's going to be restaurants, bars, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So typically, the main thing that I would say probably no straight away is more that high street. Yeah. So in the Coogee's Bondi's, I'd buy Campbell Parade, some of those noisy streets, but that's because you're there because you want to be in the heart of it. If I was in somewhere like Marrickville or Dulwich Hill, I wouldn't want to be, I'd, I'd want to be some streets back. And again, as if you look at Street View, there's stacks of these brand new properties, one after another, and that's the classic thing is there's no limit of supply and they all look pretty similar. We've got one more um, as a result of that one being sold. And sorry for the way this screen share comes in. It's like looking down some sort of matrix there. But um, we've got, uh, he's got, he's thrown through another one as Adam. Um, unit 702 of 52 to 62 Arncliffe Street, Walleye Creek, here we are here. I know that I've probably thrown you this um, last minute but obviously no, you know, it's cool. pretty well. So, so the first thing I pick up is apartment 702. To me, that says big building straight away. Um, probably means seventh floor, so maybe there's only a few apartments per floor, but generally a high rise is stuff that I walk away straight away. Seeing the yellow and the orange as um, you fly around Sydney, this is, from what I'm aware, there's stacks of these kind of properties around. So my biggest worry about this is the supply and demand thing. That's yep. the biggest thing. Um, bedrooms were always looking three meters by three meters. That's a good size bedroom, which is cool. Look, it all looks nice. Again, the danger on these new builds is who's built it. Yeah. Um, and this is probably more up your alley is how do you know that the waterproofing's been done? Um, we know the scary media stories about um, uh, some of the big buildings and and some of the building issues. That's the worry. And that's why I love these buildings that have been around for 40 or 50 years. Like the only thing we've got to worry about is concrete cancer. Mm. And that can be fixed if, if you look after it. Whereas new builds, and it's not to say all new builds are bad, but there's definitely a risk element there. And you've got the foreigners coming in that are uh, uh, pushing the market up, but then could be dropping the market overnight as well. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And uh, he's um, obviously got extra for his money there with a couple of properties, but I think some good principles in general. Um, going back into the uh, the questions we've got here, Chris, how many banks are your loans across and how do you manage this? Sure. So in an ideal world, so I think I've got 14 properties. In an ideal world, I'd have 14 banks, but it doesn't always work that way. So once you've got multiple properties, it gets very, very hard to borrow. So before I needed to, so my rents are maybe five or 600 grand a year, and I used to have to earn 500 grand to, to service. As soon as we suddenly had all this APRA stuff, overnight I had to earn a million dollars, so they suddenly doubled it. So it's one thing owing 500 grand, and suddenly they changed the rules. On 10 million, the multiplier effect is absolutely massive. Yeah. And so if I went to 14 different banks, my my set of accounts is about 250 pages long. Right. And some location is probably this high out of paper. So I feel sorry for my mortgage broker, and they're probably pulled as well with all the stress. So typically they've got to go to one or two banks that will take on that kind of size 
because it's going to take them six months to go through my paperwork. So I'm currently with three banks here, two in the UK. And if anything, we were actually in the middle of COVID trying to get it to one bank. Right. And I don't want to be with one bank, but if they're the only one that gives me the opportunity that will finance me at lesser rates and give me more money, then that's what I've got to do. So at my kind of level, it's more sometimes you've got to take whatever you can. Yeah. With um, with the stamp duty noise, we've got a question from George. Obviously, there's been uh, a lot of a lot of media around potentially abolishing stamp duty and moving to a broad based land tax. Um, and I think um, from from memory, Adam was 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 interested in what that might do to the to the market as well. What do you think would be the likely impact of that? Well, firstly, do you think it's likely, and what do you think it would do to the property market? Sure. So I pay almost zero attention to land tax, negative gearing, um, any of those kind of things, first homeowner grants, all that stuff. Most of it's a false economy. And if I worried about negative gearing since I came to Australia in 97, I'd have been worried every single year and it still hasn't happened. <laughs> um, one of the first properties I bought, it had a tennis court in front of it with the next door neighbours. We knew that at some point he was going to die and they were going to build on it. I could have worried about that for every year of my life. That property has gone from 360 to about 1.5 million. Whatever they built on the tennis court at that point didn't make any bloody difference at all. Yeah. And it's the reason I use that analogy is you could spend your whole life worrying about this stuff, either because you think it's going to crash the market or you think there's future opportunity. Most people are not that clever, and me included, or even the economist to know definitely what's going to happen. Yeah. And so I honestly would not worry about any of those things. For stuff like depreciation, have I got depreciation schedules for all my properties? Yes. Is that the reason I bought? No. Is it a bonus? Yes. If I always assume that if I'm not working, I'm not paying tax. If I don't pay tax, I can't claim tax back. And so that's why in all my calculations, again in my book, is say if I lose 15 grand a year from a property, but it cost me 10 after tax. I assume it cost me 15. Yeah. Because I look at the worst case scenario. So if Labor had taken out negative gearing and they hadn't grandfathered it, big deal. I'll deal with it. Yeah. And so even though that's not what most people would expect, you want the expert that's going to say, my tip of the week is this. This is going to be a fucking yeah. cracking opportunity. Yeah. Go and do it. I'm going to sell a big seminar room and whatever else, it's just not my style and I don't believe in it. Mm. And, and and I guess that leads into a, a question I, I wanted to ask you about. Um, and it was one of the things that we mentioned in the on the registration page. It was tips for or fundamental strategies for investors to stick to regardless of what the market, uh, market is doing. And I think that has been the theme for this evening anyway. It's it's forget about the noise, forget about the, the the next thing that the market's going to do or the next policy. If you if you're buying and you're buying well, then it shouldn't really matter. Um, so I think we can move on on that one. And I, I did want to ask you about the blue chip locations. That that apart from being a contrarian uh, investor, I would say you're pretty well known as being Mr. Blue Chip. Are you wavering in that strategy in any particular market? Do you ever get intoxicated by the returns of a regional or follow the mining towns or the or the LNG projects? 
Yeah, look, um, I'm lucky I'm not clever enough to have enough space in my brain to uh, be knowledgeable in all those areas. And so I'm kind of too lazy as well. But look, one of the seminars I went to years ago, they said, look, have 90% of your money in your core strategy and play around with 5 or 10%. And I've, I, I looked at a bit of off the plan, bought a bit of off the plan, both as a client as and for some of my clients as well. And, and the properties went up. But again, this happened in the GFC. So I think I bought at 475. It went to 525. I bought two of them. So it was a million dollars. But in the GFC is I didn't want to put down that 20% deposit. So I actually unsold them before um, before I needed to settle on them. And that's the thing with the off the plan is you might go in today thinking I bought really well, the market might rise, but you don't know what the situation is going to be like in two time. If you were settling off the plan in the middle of COVID, you might have been having kittens and that might have brought you down. Mm. And so I'm a massive fan these days of get a mortgage today, get a property today, get a tenant today and have it all fixed with nothing, nothing to worry about. We see like the NDIS, we see the, um, I'm trying to think some of these other things that have, have happened and they come and go. And I just like boring. I, re I really do. We're, we're looking at maybe setting up a property fund and we're going to do some adverts. This is the most boring fund in the world, <laughs> but it works. Yeah. I don't, I don't, sure, I'd love 20% growth a year, but I reckon on average I get seven to 10. And say on my 15 million or so, if I get, say, five to 10% growth, I make 750 to one and a half mil. I then just need to work out how to pull that equity out. But bottom line is my wealth is, is, is being added to like that. I think that's pretty cool for not a lot of risk. Sure, I've got some debt, but I'm like two thirds geared. Um, I don't think you need to follow all that stuff. And most of the calls that we would get on Sky were from people that have tried to get rich too quick. Yeah. yeah. And they followed the books, they followed their their mate or whatever else, and it's generally gone wrong. And look, I know it's tough and, and you want to make money quickly, but every quick way of getting wealthy nearly always goes wrong. Mm. It really is. I want to jump to, we've had a couple of quick questions come in. John's got a cracker. Where would you invest with approximately 750K and what? Okay, so without a doubt, um, for me, and again, it depends on your circumstances and all that kind of stuff, I would be buying a one-bedder in the eastern beaches, Lone or Shore in the west, and holding on to it forever. I've, I've actually got one in Coogee in uh, Dolphin Street, that I actually created off two balconies. So we kind of turned two apartments into three, but that's 40 square meters, no views or anything like that, but pretty much opposite the beach that's worth about 750. Um, car park space, I reckon that's always gonna be rented no matter what, because someone in their 30s or 40s, they're sick of sharing. They probably rent that for, I don't know, five or 550 a week or something like that. And that's affordable in that area. To have your own little, own little pad, I reckon that's gold. Yeah. But look, if I was in Brisbane, you get a four-bedroom house for that. Well, speaking of Brisbane, this might be where we need to go for the next question. Uh, Prola has said, I'm not a big investor. I look for max four $50,000 property. So far, I have a house in Melbourne and a unit in Brisbane. I can't find much in my budget in Melbourne. Is it a good idea to invest in Brisbane? Sure. So, so look, my thought generally is I'd go 
Sydney first, then Melbourne, and then Brisbane, and then, say, Perth, and then the other states. And my logic behind that is more the supply and demand. So I think Sydney and Melbourne are probably going to be similar. So if you're from Melbourne, then I'll probably put Melbourne first. Um, Brisbane, my basic economics says there is more land there. People can still subdivide. You can still do lots of developments and stuff like that. So it's not short of supply, and I don't think there's as much money, but I'm sure I could be proved wrong. Um, but I'd probably do those things the other way. So like I mentioned before is I'd be doing the house in Brisbane. I'd be doing the townhouse or the semi in Melbourne or maybe a unit and definitely the unit in Melbourne. Yeah. So if I had 450, look, I probably would go to Brisbane and and get something decent because I think you're much better off getting good location and getting what's right for that area. And 450 is around that median price for, for Brisbane. Yep, beautiful. We might go to one more if you wouldn't mind, yeah, Chris. Sure. Um, Dwarna said, if you had 400,000 in cash, would you start with one property or buy three of lesser value for the cash flow returns to then leverage into more? So look, the main thing is, is generally leveraging property as long as you're comfortable with it. So... 400 grand for some people might get them a million dollars worth of property depending on your income it might get you two or three million dollars so again is my priority would be 750 to one and a half million in sydney but say if you're not super wealthy then probably more 750 to 1.25 and i'd just buy as many of those or if you're down in melbourne you can probably be spending six to eight hundred or something like that and so I try and leverage as much as I can. So turn that into whatever the dollar value is. Whatever that dollar value is, is then split that up by median price, depending on if you're in Melbourne or Brisbane. Um, but look, if you haven't, my, my strategy is very much high income because they're negative geared. So our rents are only 3.5%, which is 2 2.5% net. Whereas if you're out regional areas, you're probably getting maybe, I don't know, five, maybe people are getting sixes. So if you haven't got a high income to support that negative gearing, you haven't really got a choice. Unless you can use the equity to cash flow that negative gearing, you probably then need more positive cash flow properties. Yeah. And, and that's why there isn't a one strategy that suits all. And so for the people that says, look, Chris, you're always going on about Bondi and I, I don't care about that, that that's fine. But probably 90% of what I say and I educate and is in my books and TV, it's all about the mentality. And the Nathan Birches and uh, the mining town people and all these other people, 90% of our knowledge and mindset will all be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. But we just choose that last 5 or 10% to invest in different things because of our profile or because we're trying to sell books or mass market or whatever else. Yeah. So that bit you can tailor yourselves. Andrew's just got one in on the buzzer. We might make this the, the last one. I appreciate your time, Chris. Andrew's got a number of properties in Adelaide, um, is looking to buy something else, but thinking to sell one to avoid, avoid to buy, uh, to afford to buy in a growth area like Melbourne or Brisbane. This is a question that's come up with people before um, on, the, on the podcast, and, and that's, do you wait till you have a certain amount to get into these areas or do you go elsewhere at a lower price point? This is kind of the reverse of that. Should he sell properties that he's, he's got that at a lower price point to try and get into something at a higher price point, which has maybe got more upside? Sure. So effectively, it's, it should be purely a mathematical calculation. 
So what I always say is whatever your dilemma is, you can solve it on Excel. And if you're not good at accounts or Excel, just find a mate that is, or you can get a bookkeeper for, for peanuts to go and do it. So effectively, what you want to do is put your Adelaide portfolio on, on one bit of paper and then go to someone like Residex or CoreLogic RP Data to try and get the growth rates that they predict for that area or SQM research. So say you've got a million dollars in Adelaide across three properties or something, and that's going to grow up 5%. Then what you do is then go to your mortgage broker or accountant to say, if I sold those properties, what are all the selling costs? What are all the capital gains? Whatever else. What is my net cash going to be position going to be then after I've paid all those costs? Then go to the mortgage broker and say, well, if I turned all of that money into, say, 300 grand's worth of cash, how much can I then leverage with that? And then what's the best area I can get into? And then use those same core logic, RP data, SQM research reports to say, what am I going to do somewhere else? So effectively, what the formula should be is like, I've got a million dollars rising at 5%. But if I sell up, pay all the costs, I might be only swapping that for 800 grand or 900 grand's worth of property. But if that's growing at 7 or 8%, within two or three years, I'm suddenly going to be ahead. But you're always going to effectively take a step down on your total portfolio value because of the selling and buying costs, which is still about 10%. Mm -hmm. But if you're then getting into a better growth area or less risky, then within X amount of years, then you'll overtake that. And, and ideally, if you can pull the equity out and do both, keep those properties, assuming they are going to grow, and buy in another place, then so much the better. Mm. And there's nothing like Excel for taking the emotion out of a decision and probably yep. the emotion out of life. It's and, and, and send it to some friends, send it to some other experts. So a lot of people say to me, how come you put all your um, stuff in the press? Like I tell people how much I earn, I tell people my rents, my portfolio, because I've got nothing to hide. No one can then say, oh, you're big noting yourself or you should be worth more or you should be worth less. It is what it is and the accountant can prove it because I'd be pretty stupid to put it in the press if I was lying. Um, but also it gets people to challenge me. So even like John McGrath in the old days, I'd, I'd put all my numbers out there because I want those people to challenge what I do in case I'm missing something. Yeah. And because I've put it out there for 20 years, no one really comes to me saying, oh, you got this wrong or you should be doing this because I've generally heard all the objections to what I'm doing anyway, and I've got some insurance to cover it. So yeah. that's why I put it out there. Who, who cares what you earn? Tell everyone. If you keep it a secret, you're never going to learn. However, if the media are listening, I've got a scandal for you. Chris has sold his Lamborghini, although annoyingly for more money than he paid for it seven years ago and adding 50,000 kilometres. And, <laughs> and in the middle of COVID. And in the middle of COVID. So if that's not contrary, and uh, I don't know what is. Chris, um, it's... So oh. my only thing is, I told my wife, I should have bought three of them. Yeah, yeah exactly. I made three lots of 50 grand. There you go. You've, you've paved the way for the next purchase um, without any objections whatsoever. Chris, thank you for coming on tonight and sharing your wisdom. It's, it's been a lot of fun, and I'm sure a lot of people got a, a, a huge amount out of that. So thanks for being so generous with your time in general, and certainly tonight. And if anyone hasn't got a copy of the uh, Your Empire book, then jump onto Chris's website. You can download that there. Um, thanks, Chris. It's been great having you. Look, um, I love it, and hopefully people realise from the conversation that most of us do it because we've got a passion for it. We're not necessarily paid for it, and so uh, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life.